0: Hey guys, welcome back to 4Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the
1: U.S. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku.
0: I'm Dr. Deepan Kar.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Bravinda Rindava. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. We've invited Dr. Hardeep Kataria to join our podcast today. Dr. Kataria was raised in London, England but completed her optometric degree in Boston. So since the get-go, she's been focused on medical optometry and ocular disease and now practices at a multi-specialty ophthalmology group in Los Angeles. Her social media presence has grown significantly in the past few months as her content educates everybody on optometry, gender bias, mental health, and so much more. So we're really excited today to have Dr. Kataria on our podcast to talk about the challenges that women in healthcare face on a daily basis due to gender bias and how to help overcome these obstacles. Side note for all of our listeners listening to this episode on day one that it's coming out, Dr. Kataria is one of the speakers at the annual Women's Leadership Conference that's happening right now between October 13th to October 15th, between 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. The conference is being held within the AAO's virtual conference, so if you've already registered for Academy, then you're good to go. If you haven't registered for Academy, registration for the Women's Conference is still open and free to join, so the link to register is in our episode description. So make sure to join and learn more from these great women in optometry. Um, Hardeep, so for any of our listeners that don't know who you are yet, would you please tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure.
2: Okay. So thank you for having me here again. Um, so my name is Hardeep Kataria and I am an optometrist um, practicing in Los Angeles, California. Um, so I've been here about... Four years um, in Calif- uh Well, so I've been in California about six years, and then I've been at the p- current practice that I'm at um, for about four years. And so I'm in um, an ophthalmology practice, and I'm essentially practicing medical optometry. Um, I focus on glaucoma and dry eye. Um, so I co-manage with retina and cornea and oculoplastics, um, and then I essentially am doing the, the medical glaucoma side of things at the practice.
1: Nice. So what made you go into, um, you know, the medical side of optometry or what even sparked your interest in optometry in general?
2: So I love that question. I always, um, I always had a tremendous faith in the medical side of optometric management. Um, So when I was in undergrad, I had a chance to start like a pre-optometry internship program at the VA. And so right away, I was exposed to optometry in more of a hospital setting where the optometrists were running the eye clinic, essentially. and so right away, we were thrown into, you know, conducting visual fields and OCTs and pachymetry and managing glaucoma and seeing these complicated herpes simplex keratitis type cases and, you know, really understanding how diabetes affects the eyes. And so that was my introduction to optometry. So that's what I knew uh, of, of optometry. Um, And so going into optometry school, I actually planned out my entire academic career so that I could focus on medical optometry when I graduated. Um, And so really why optometry is because I love the medical management side of things. Um, So right from my third year rotations to choosing those electives during third year to my fourth year rotations, and even my choice of residency, I was really able to kind of hone in and focus on the medical side of things. And even when I graduated, albeit it did take some time to find that, you know, more medically focused position, I was finally able to, you know, find something that I was relatively happy with.
1: Nice. Wow. So you've had a passion for medical optometry the whole way through.
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and I that's knew what awesome. I wanted from the get-go and I, I figured, yes. hey, I have to make this work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's no plan B. But that's it. <laughs> yeah.
0: So not only are you an expert at medical optometry, but you are also an advocate for female empowerment, especially in the healthcare field. So in your opinion, what issues are female optometrists commonly encountering in the profession today? And what made you want to become so involved in women empowerment and fighting the sexism
2: that women in medicine face on a daily basis? So that's a really great question. Um, I think that the main issues that women optometrists face today are very similar to what women physicians and other women healthcare professionals face. Um, You know, so limited leadership roles, for example, and gender-based pay gap, less opportunities to essentially climb that ladder um, of, you know, practice ownership. And and really just, you know, limited opportunities to speak and to take a seat at the table, you know, Mm -hmm. essentially, um, when it comes to making decisions, for example, in a practice. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, unfortunately, and maybe we can turn this negative into a positive, but my personal experiences actually propelled me to want to speak out about the issues that I currently face or or have faced. Um, And so in my journey of speaking out, I've realized that I'm not alone. And, and when I first started experiencing these sexist, uh, encounters of sexism, I really did feel alone. And, and this started when I was a student. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're a student, you feel that you, well, I felt that I had to tolerate a lot more than, you know, for example, a practicing mm-hmm. clinician. Um, I felt alone. I felt afraid of retaliation. I felt mm-hmm. afraid to talk to my preceptors because I felt that they would see me in a negative light. Um, you know, I felt afraid of negative consequences. This Is going to affect my grade? Um, And so, and and all of those things are very unfortunate for a student to feel. Um, I experienced it when I was a resident um, and especially from patients. And again, even then I didn't speak up for myself. Um, And I, I think if, you know, all four of us sat down after hours and had a very candid conversation about our experiences, we might commiserate our experiences. And we might find that there are similar trends that, you know, that we, that we would find. Um, and so at first I am ashamed to admit this, but at first I used to think that perhaps I should change something about myself and about how I carry Mm -hmm. myself in the clinic. Um, and so I thought, you know, should I wear more makeup? Should I wear higher heels? Should I wear blazers to work? I mean, should I change the way I, just should I change my appearance somehow, how how I appear to patients so that I can look, you know, more authoritative in my role as a doctor? You know, I'm the doctor. I'm in here. I'm presenting the findings. I'm presenting this information to you. Um, and I know I know my stuff, but for some reason I'm not being taken seriously. Maybe I should change the way that I look. And that was my thought process at the time. Um, and I'm only admitting this <laughs> because I hope that if somebody is listening to this interview and they're having the same thoughts, I want you to tell, I want to tell you, please don't do that. (laughs) Don't change yourself. Don't change the way you look. You don't need to more make wear more makeup or wear higher heels. The only way really, in my opinion to change sexism in the workplace against women is to speak up about it and to educate people about it. And, you know, I think, you know, doing, Um, like, uh, interviews like this, you know, where we can all sit down and commiserate our experiences are really important, because it allows us to, you know, create a safe space where we can open up and talk about our experiences, and just raise that awareness.
0: Um, No, that's a really good point. Um, I was going to say this, we're going to talk about this a little bit later. But when you were talking about um, how you shouldn't change yourself, I think personally, that was something that I was dealing a lot within clinic, because I would always come back to these guys, and I'd always be like, I'm not really sure what's going on, but these kind of experiences are happening to me. Should I change my personality? And, you know, (laughs) so you're like younger like we were like oh yeah that might be a good solution to what you know what you need to do so but you raise up a really good point it's like no you don't need to do that you need we need to kind of talk about this um topic more let more people become aware about it and then kind of go from there
2: to see what we can to address the situation right
0: so yeah exactly
2: and i think you've proven my point perfectly you know if we sat down and talked about our personal experiences we can really commiserate and it's ironic how we all felt so alone yeah. when we were experiencing it. And we come back and we talk to our friends and our family and we think, what, co- what am I doing wrong? And we have the insight, we have the self-awareness to think, you know, what am I doing wrong? Is it something that I can change about myself? But it's not, it's not you. Yeah. It's, sexism is ingrained in our culture, in yeah. society, in yeah. politics. And unfortunately, we are just getting caught in this crossfire. And, and, and speaking about it is really the only way to change it.
1: Yeah,
3: yeah. Sure. yeah. So how are you personally dealing with issues surrounding gender bias in your own workplace, since you are the only female doctor within that practice? Uh, well, some days are a struggle. <laughs> That's the <laughs> honest answer. <laughs> um,
2: and I, I take every opportunity to speak out if I think I need to. I never used to be that way. Um, but I have um, practiced a lot. And, and sometimes I, you know, I'm in very uncomfortable situations. But I truly believe that you will, things will only change and you will only change and you will only grow if you're uncomfortable. And I think I think change is uncomfortable in in a lot of situations. A lot of times, my friends say, "Well, maybe you need to pick your battles." And sometimes that's helpful advice. But mostly, I try to address these issues in hopes that maybe I'm setting a good example for somebody else who's watching, and also yeah. for myself and for my sanity. Um, and so, it is uncomfortable to speak up sometimes, um, but it's also necessary. And so, I I Force myself to be in that position where I need to speak up. If a patient is, um, at, you know, passing sexist comments, I need to call that out. That needs to change. That weighs heavily on me as an individual, as a person, um, you know. And so, having a good support system is really important. Um, you know, so I, 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 I love my family. I love my friends. Um, I have certain friends who I can talk to about this. I have certain friends who. I feel that, you know, um, maybe might not understand necessarily what I'm experiencing. Um, and, and I try to educate them, but there's a time and place for that too. So, um, you know, I think the biggest thing is, is, is speaking up like we, like we talked about before um, and having a good support system that can really help you get through those tough days.
1: Oh, yeah. Definitely. I feel like even if you know you, you can't change other people's actions, you can only change your response to uh, something that's happening around you. And so even speaking up and if the other person or the situation doesn't change, the fact that you've taken that um, courage to speak up will also hopefully alleviate some of that Kind of like Like self-doubt. Yes. Yeah. Like you feel disappointed in yourself if you don't say anything. I agree with you, um, Amrit. I think, you know,
2: (laughs) when I have a difficult conversation at work and I'm laughing as I think about this because I have these conversations Mm. in the shower with myself. (laughs) Man, I should have said that. Oh, shoot. I should have said that. Next time I'm going to say that. And so I don't want to have those conversations with myself in the shower. I need to have those conversations with people. to let it out. Yeah, so that my external world is somehow changing.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's
0: well, good for your own
1: mental health, too. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, yeah.
0: You both bring up a really good point, like when you were talking about who you choose to kind of talk to about these certain experiences, um, even when we were in school, I kind of had to pick and choose who I would share these experiences with because there were some friends that would just kind of dismiss the situation. And when you're, you know, when you kind of speak up and you, as you were saying, you grow through these uncomfortable moments, you're still uncomfortable and you still need to talk about it to help with your mental health. But if there's certain people in your circle of friends that don't respond or support you the way that you need to be supported, it's kind of like, okay, how do we talk about this again? How do I bring this issue up again? without you know feeling uncomfortable and all that stuff so that's really important like who you decide to share experiences with and um, those that don't support you the way that you want to again yeah educating them will definitely help
3: mm-hmm. and as you said earlier too sometimes you let that self-doubt get in the way too it's like when you're in school you're like I don't want to speak up I don't want my grades to be affected and then when you start working then you're like oh I don't want to have that that weird relationship with my other coworkers or even my boss, like if I speak up. So then that that self-doubt always kind of kicks in. I know it has happened to me in school where somebody made a comment about something and then you're just like, I want to tell them, explain to them. But then you're like, at the same time, I don't want my marks to get affected and or I don't want to get on my attending's bad side because then then yeah. I am – miserable the whole quarter
2: mm-hmm.
3: so it's it's
2: tough i think it's the same. yeah i, I yeah I think it, yeah definitely very difficult and i think um you know what i realized when i was a student so what i realized when i was an attending rather, is that you know the attendings when you see it from the attending side it's very different the perspective is very different because you know the attendings want the students to succeed Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they are there to help you learn clinic and optometry. And if there is something that's getting in the way of that, then my hope is that the attending will help you get through that. Mm -hmm. And, and I understand the fear completely, but if there is a serious situation, then I would encourage any student or resident to bring it to an attending that they trust. There has to be somebody that they trust Mm -hmm. within the system that they can bring this to and say, this is making me very uncomfortable. How do I approach the situation? Give me some advice.
3: So kind of going a little bit uh, different topic now. So even though the optometry profession has more women than males nowadays, in your own opinion, why is it that we still mostly see males in a majority of leadership positions?
2: I think it's sometimes difficult for women to quote, take a seat at the table and, um, I think it's difficult for, you know, op- for those. I, I think the opportunities are there. I mm-hmm. I think that um, I think that there are certain biases that are pre-existing. Um, for example, like the maternal bias. You know, there there are biases that have yeah. been these names have been labeled to these biases, and and you know, I think the maternal bias, especially towards women. Um, of, of childbearing age where women maybe might not be considered for leadership roles or they might not be considered for a promotion um, or you know ownership for a practice because their employer is worried that this woman might leave the position to go and have a child. And mm-hmm. I, I think that maternal bias is 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 there? I think it exists. as the real thing that women face in all healthcare, uh, in 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 healthcare, but essentially in, in everywhere. Um, you know, in okay. all positions, um, in the corporate world as as well as in the healthcare world. And and so I think that's one. I think that's one big um, obstacle for us. And then, you know, I think that there's that likability bias. A woman is in a power a, a position of power, leadership role, and she's less liked because she's in this leadership role but when a man is in this leadership role it's almost like it's expected for a man to be in this leadership role and i think that goes back to a conversation we were having about our culture it's it's deeply rooted in our culture here in america it's deeply rooted in politics i mean american politics (laughs) is a whole different situation different topic um and it's deeply rooted there it's deeply rooted in society it's everywhere um, and then there's, I think, the biggest thing that I've experienced personally is this affinity bias. You know, this, um, you know, this this bias where psychology shows that you know mentors like to take mentees under their wing if they remind them of themselves. And so, you know, if you look at practices, there are a lot of white men optometrists who own practices traditionally and this might be changing very well yes absolutely um but that still exists okay and so if white men are going to take other young white men under their wing to train them where does that leave number one women and where does that leave number two women of color
1: Mm
2: -hmm. so i think that you know, the opportunities are there, but women are creating opportunities for themselves. And I think like a, a publication like Women in Optometry, Women in Optometry Voices podcast, I think I love the initiative for Women in Optometry because it just highlights how many women are out there Living their dream, owning private practices, owning subleases, um, owning companies, becoming CEOs of their own companies, and really getting out there and becoming leaders in the field. And I, you know, feel that it's important to highlight women who are doing this because it serves as motivation for other women that, Hey, look, there are Mm -hmm. women who are doing this. You can do this. You don't have to be subject to this maternal bias. You can be your own boss. You don't have to be subject, subject to this affinity bias. You don't need a mentor. You can go and do it by yourself. Okay. And, 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 so, and and so I I do think that these biases are real and they do affect us. And um, you know, when we're trying to pursue leadership roles, this can be a real hindrance for us.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're so right. And hopefully with the amount of females that are entering the optometry world, hopefully that statistic of, you know, the older white male owning a lot of the private practices across the nation, hopefully will switch to, you know, females really dominating and taking over the profession as they are in the schools, at least. <laughs> what was our, our class size? I think it was like 30% male. Right. So yeah. 70% women, females,
3: 30% males. Yeah.
1: And actually, hardeep I wanted to go back just a little bit with, um, you know, when we were talking about females encountering, you know, inappropriate comments from either patients or attendings or colleagues, um, you know, in order to fight those inappropriate comments, what are some effective ways that women can handle the comments from their male um, you know colleagues or patients?
2: Um, my go to is speak up and, mm-hmm. and so um, you know saying something matters. it matters a whole lot. It matters for yourself, it matters for your offender, and it matters for whoever's watching you um, so you know, my advice to students, residents is to voice your concerns like we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Find an attending who you feel that you can trust and bring these concerns to. Um, some things I learned to kind of, you know, advocate for myself as a, as a resident, especially when it came to patient encounters, um, keep your exam room door open, especially at the VA or if you don't feel oh, yes. comfortable. <laughs> yes, so, no, definitely no. at the yeah. <laughs> or at least keep it ajar, um, you know, and so and, and, and you can create a buddy system if you have uh, a fellow resident who has an exam room next to you um, and you know that you're taking in, a, you know, like a, a red flag patient, um, then, you know, you can speak in a raised voice, um, especially if you need a, that co-resident to come in and assist with the exam. Um, you know, I had a situation recently where I myself had to very directly set the boundary with the patient. And so I would say at that point, I think it's okay to tell your patient, I would like to continue with the exam now. Okay. Period. I would like to continue with the exam. Um, call it out. This makes me very uncomfortable. That's a very inappropriate comment. You don't need to laugh. You don't need to sugarcoat it. Look the patient directly in the eye that's an inappropriate comment. Um, mm-hmm. That might come with a lot of fear, you know, fear of retaliation Is a patient to start yelling at me or, but you know, a sexist comment is unacceptable. And if the patient starts yelling or retaliating because you're asking them to stop saying inappropriate comments to you, the patient now needs to leave your exam room yeah. and the encounter is over. Yes. Um, So I I think, so, so those are the big things that I would go to. There are some patients who will be very persistently sexist. And in that, in some cases, I have just completely transferred the care over to another doctor in the practice. I, now there was a patient who was racist towards me. And so I discharged that patient from the practice completely. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you have to decide where that boundary is for you and then set it and then execute it.
0: I, I admit this, like I laugh when I'm uncomfortable
2: and when those comments Absolutely. are pending, Yeah. Like, ha 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 ha. And I just like, <laughs> right. Exactly. You try to keep carrying on. Right. But the, what I found is that laughing encourages yeah. them to kind mm-hmm. of keep going and then they become a repeat offender. But hang on a second. Your patient made a comment that made you super uncomfortable. And because you were uncomfortable and you don't know what to say, you, didn't, you don't really know how to handle it. You laughed. Yeah. Well, that patient has no idea that that made you uncomfortable. Exactly. So in that case, it becomes a, a little bit of a, a, am I being fair, even though this patient has said a very sexist, inappropriate, rude mm-hmm. comment to me. And so again, uh, it's, it's important to call it out and it's important to speak up for sure.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, so you kind of talked about
0: um, what I'm going to ask you next in one of your Instagram posts, but studies have shown that men interpret women more often than other men and that women tend to apologize more frequently than men. Um, so these behaviors often minimize ourselves and our work. So um, how can we change our communication skills in order to be
2: viewed as more of a competent leader and an authority figure? in our workplace? So yes, great question. Another Instagram post that was motivated by <laughs> a patient encounter. Um yeah. and so, you know, I called this um this hashtag man interrupting or yep. when you're interrupted by a man. Um okay so I can talk about this all night. Um it's a very <laughs> close and dear topic to me. it happens so much. <laughs> um so the the study I cited was out of George Washington and it demonstrated that men interrupt women 33% more then they interrupt men, okay? So, so that's, that number needs to change. Um, in my experience, I have dealt with this with coworkers, with patients, with staff members, in any setting, in every setting. Um, I've, you know, learned a few techniques that seem to work well. Um, you know, the whole idea is to facilitate a more equal participation environment um and the best thing in my experience is again to, you know, like you said, establish yourself as a confident leader, as an authoritative figure, is to set a boundary. And so often, you know, times I will say, you know, with a patient, for example, okay, I will talk now. Please allow me to finish my thoughts and then it will be your turn to speak. And in most cases, I want to say ninety-five percent of cases that works really well. Um and a lot of times, you know, the patient is not interrupting you because you're a woman. Sometimes they're just very anxious and they just want to get everything out. And you're trying to kind of figure out, you're trying to tease apart the chief complaint. Um, But there's so much information coming at you and it can be very overwhelming. And so communication is essentially has just broken down.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And in that situation, it's definitely worked for me to say, you know, set that boundary. I will talk now. Um, For, other men, where maybe they come from more of a patriarchal culture, where men are considered the authority and women are considered more submissive, and they don't have a lot of women in authoritative positions or positions of higher knowledge, um, it's it's common for them to interrupt women, and um, they might not realize that it's a point of um, contention, and so that can be awkward. Um, again, I will use the same technique. I would like to speak. And when I'm finished, then it will be your turn to speak. And, or please save your questions until after I've, I'm done um, speaking. Um, It can be sometimes pretty awkward. um, And especially with repeat offenders, I have definitely had situations where I have for multiple and on multiple occasions, I've asked them to stop interrupting me and I'll say, you know, it's my turn to speak. And, And then we've done that. And we're kind of, you know, circling around each other and we've done that three or four times. And Then I'll just keep talking and I won't stop. Um, And then then that will um, eventually lead to the man who will stop talking and I would have continued. Uh, that's super awkward. And I definitely don't recommend it, especially (laughs) as the first way of handling the situation. I would definitely try to kind of call it out, address it, set the boundary in a non-confrontational way. Um, And then unless you have reason to believe that now somebody's just doing it on purpose. Um, I think it's really important as women to support other women Um, For example, in a meeting type setting. So if you're witnessing a woman who is being interrupted by a man, um, you know, I would recommend that you speak up and say, you know, hey, Amrit has a really good point. Do you think that we could finish uh, listening to what she was saying? And then we could continue with this. Um, and you know, if there's another man in the room who could do that, then that sets a really example, a really good example for the other men in the room. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I think that there are definitely techniques, um, that, you know, allow you to, you know, facilitate that boundary setting. Um, and it works yeah. in most patients and in most situations. And if it doesn't, then I just kind of go full on and just keep talking.
1: <laughs> I actually just did. <laughs> that exact same thing on one of my patients earlier this week. Um, I had a patient come in. He had some vision loss in the left eye. So I guess, you know, throughout the months he was, you know, all that anxiety had kind of built up because he doesn't know why his vision has gone down. I think um, I let him speak for his case history for about 15 minutes because he just kept going. And I kept saying, you know what? I'm going to stop you right there, sir. I'm going to stop you. I need to ask you certain questions. And he just kept going. And then I just spoke directly on top of him full on with no pause in between my sentences. And we were both just talking at the same time. It was so <laughs>
2: awkward. <It's very> awkward. <laughs> it was so
1: awkward, but I felt like, you know what? This is it. I'm going to say this sentence once. And if you don't know what I'm saying, then too bad. You just missed out. And he would just talk at the same time. And I was like, all right, you're never going to hear that sentence again. So it's awkward, but you have to do it. You have to show them that, you know, I have something to say. My mouth is moving too. So you need to stop so that you can hear what's coming out of my mouth and understand that I'm also part of the conversation. So it's really funny. You mentioned that I felt very awkward doing that. And I felt pretty bad because he did have diabetic retinopathy and you know, I felt bad that I <laughs> that I spoke over him, but you have to do it.
2: Honestly, yeah. yeah. it's exhausting. Yeah, um, you know, and and to to continue to have to keep fighting the same battle yeah. every day, again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like I said before, I think that you have to believe that what you're doing is working towards a positive change. Yeah. And you are. somebody is watching. You've got staff watching technicians, scribes. Um, So I think that you have to believe that you are setting a good and positive example for the other women who are watching and you don't know, but you might be motivating them.
3: Yeah. I think you make a a really good point there. Um, You know, I have had a patient where a husband and wife came and every time I was asking a question, the husband kept answering for the wife and I had to stop and be like, I'm sorry, I need to ask her directly. Like, you know, I'm asking and she's the patient, you know, like she can answer for herself. Like she is mentally there. She can tell me what's wrong with her. You know, you don't need to. So and I think that you make a really good point that you are setting a role model for others, yeah. other people watching you. You know, sometimes it's just that small thing that you do that can trigger something, right? It might trigger something in her that would be like, hey, maybe I need to speak out more often. Like, mm-hmm. I can't let my husband or who, my boyfriend or my boss kind of tell me what to do or talk yeah. for me. You know, I need to share my own thoughts, my own opinions, my own problems. So, mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. A hundred percent agreed. And I think it's also in our body language as well. You know, in your situation, Ravinda, where, you know, you know, and I have experienced, you know, I've experienced that quite a bit. I will turn my body towards the patient completely. Mm -hmm. And I'm at eye level. So I bring my stool down. I'm at eye level and I'm leaned in slightly and I am honing in and getting full 100% eye contact with that patient. Mm -hmm. And if the, male counterparts slash significant other is still communicating for that patient like you Mm -hmm. said then then you address the situation head on and then you say hang on a minute sir thank you so much for your input i need to speak with the patient yes yeah
3: so are there any resources so any books conferences website or even podcasts that you recommend for women in healthcare to utilize in order for them to understand their worth in their own work environments Definitely. Um, so, you know, like you said
2: in your question, I think, you know, knowing your worth in your mm-hmm. profession and, you know, especially when you go, you know, into like contract negotiation for a position, for example, is very important. You need to know that before you go in. You don't allow that position to um, tell you what your worth is. So mm-hmm. you have to do your own educate, uh, research and, and, and educate yourself um some of the resources that i've used to you know know my worth for example financially before i walk into a contract negotiation is ods on facebook um so i'll reach out explain the situation sometimes i might reach out um via dm to to Mm -hmm. to um folks i know on ods on facebook ods on finance corporate optometry those types of social media groups have been very helpful um If you know certain doctors who are your acquaintance on Instagram, for example, same thing. So social media, the social media platform can be very powerful, can be very useful. And this is definitely a situation where it can be very useful. Um, optometric management and women in optometry and covalent careers in terms of just for optometry optometrists, um, have some great resources, some very Mm -hmm. excellent, well-known doctors in our fields have written some excellent articles about, you know, how to establish your worth, um, how to know your worth and, and, and topics, um, such as that, um, In terms of women in the workplace, the two resources that I really love, number one, leanin.org, has some fantastic data on sexism in the workplace. It applies to probably more corporate settings, but um, definitely applicable, you know, in in the healthcare setting as well. Um, And then the other one that I love is Feminine. So Fem in M is an organisation that's typically for females in emergency medicine, and um, but but actually it's an excellent resource for all all healthcare um, positions. In my opinion, I was one of the first optometrists to be named to their speakers bureau, so it's been a very helpful resource for me as an optometrist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think also getting involved in your local community, especially the local optometric society, because when you're involved and you're on the board or you're attending the meetings, you're networking. So you're building mm-hmm. your network of colleagues and friends in the field. And when you are in a position where you're doing that you know, market research, I think it's really important um, for you to be able to you know, reach out to your colleagues and and, and run certain situations by them. Um, Mm -hmm. also eyes on 2021 is coming up, which is, um, conference held by covalent careers. So I will be doing a talk on how to negotiate your contract. So (laughs) if anybody wants to listen to that, um, then, you know, I do go over kind of tips and tricks on, on how to approach the negotiation as well. So definitely those resources have been helpful.
1: Yes. Yeah. You actually named, a ton of amazing resources that I think the three of us here use frequently as well. So we definitely agree with those resources and, you know, um, bringing up women in optometry specifically. So tomorrow night, which when this podcast airs, will be the same night um, you are presenting Mm -hmm. at the 2020 women's leadership conference. So in your opinion, First of all, what can optometrists, male or female, expect to learn from this annual conference?
2: Yeah, so the Women in Leadership Conference um, is very exciting. I'm very honored to be a part of you know such an amazing esteemed and established group of ladies um mm-hmm. women optometrists so the panel that i'll be speaking on um i'll be speaking with dr dory colson who was the first woman um president of the american optometric association um dr leslie odell and then dr maria sampalas um and i've already learned so much from them in the time that i've known them and we will be speaking about how to negotiate an employment contract and how to recognize your worth and it's applicable to applicable to both men and women optometrists um, and and so we'll be talking about pointers on how to negotiate a contract once you have a firm official offer um, and we'll be talking about kind of the research and preparation that goes into um, you know understanding your worth and how you can grow your financial contribution to a practice if you are an employed um, An employed optometrist. The other three ladies who I speak with all own their own private practices, um, in, in some capacity. And so they will also be able to touch upon their experiences in terms of negotiating contracts, um, for you know in terms of what's involved in in owning a private practice um so i think that it will appeal to both men and women optometrists and will also appeal to a multitude of different practice settings so i think it's going to be you know really useful and really helpful
1: yes yeah
0: i think a lot of new grads when they first get their job and want to negotiate all these different things they don't really know what to say or what to do or really know what they're getting into they just look at the salary and they're like great sign me up but yes, <laughs> yes. all these like different things you need to kind of look at so um yeah I think that's those are really really great topics and we're yes. very excited about it so yeah um, so, Hardeep, just to change the gears a little bit here. Um, so we, you know, met you or found you on social media, right? So, yes. what made you decide to have a social media presence as an optometrist, and how early in your career did you start this presence?
2: Okay, great question. Social media. So I, um, I'm not very social media savvy and I actually just joined social media as a professional account less than six months ago. So a oh. friend of mine who is an optometrist, um, started a professional account and I was like, wow, maybe this is a good way to connect with other colleagues because of this pandemic. And so I just started an account. And my goal really was to educate people about eyes, you know, about different topics that people might be interested in. Um, You know, one of the most, I guess, you know, popular posts was what is a doctor of optometry Mm -hmm. Um, that people really seem to respond very positively to. Um, You know, and and the idea was to talk about, you know, especially when I first started it was, you know, how could COVID affect the eyes and, you know, what is macular degeneration and just kind of very simple ocular education topics. Um, But now I would say that it's become much, much, much more than that. I had absolutely no idea that there was such a huge optometric and medical and healthcare community on social media. I truly had no idea. Before starting my professional account, I had a personal account that I would check about once a month. And so social media really wasn't a part of my life prior to, you know, 6 months ago. So when I was in school, when I was a resident, even, you know, when I came out in practice, I didn't really, you know, understand the power that social media, you know, has. Um, And I didn't understand the value of it. And I've really just understood how valuable, how powerful it can be. Um, You know, I see these students, you know, documenting their journeys through professional schools and I admire them because I feel like I would never make the time Um, (laughs) you know, and and I would never make the time to learn how to use it. (laughs) Um, And it wasn't important to me. And so, you know, I think that was a huge misstep on my part. So I, you know, if I could go back and do it again, I definitely would join social media a lot earlier. I have found so much love and so much support from these people Mm -hmm. I have never met in real life before. Um, And I think it's amazing. Um, You know, I think that look at this huge community of providers from they're all from different walks of life everybody has a different goal everybody has a different quote why but we're all using the same platform to achieve our goal Mm -hmm. i mean if we just think about that that's so powerful how
0: do you feel um about how your social media presence um How do you feel how how it contributed to the awareness of gender bias and
2: sexism? Because that's a huge part of your account. Yes, definitely. Um, You know, I'm hoping that I'm making a difference. Um, you know, like I said, it, it never started that way. But, you know, kind of as I met more, you know, women in healthcare and in the community, in the medical community, um, I realized, you know, I had a huge realization that I'm not alone in this. Um, mm-hmm. and, and connecting, you know, with so many professionals has really motivated me to continue to speak up about it. Um, you know, I hope I'm making a difference. Recently, an, a woman optometrist out of Toronto um, in Canada reached out and she thanked me for influencing her decision to speak up about gender bias on social media. And so, oh my goodness, that was so special to me. (laughs) Um, because really we're all in the same boat and, um, you know, we're all, We're achieving different things, but we're in the same boat. We're using the same platform to do it. And I just hope that we can all just continue to encourage each other um, and to continue to support each other's goals. And I think that's what it's all about is supporting each other. I show you support, you show me support. I lift you up, you lift me up.
1: I think when you mentioned that, you know, you joined social media pretty late in your career, like you weren't really um, present on Instagram as a student or as a resident, even when practicing. And honestly, we were all in the same boat as you. So, you know, we just started our podcast back in March of this year. So our podcast is still a baby. And We only had our own personal accounts, um, you know, before this. And I think out of the three of us here, I was probably the most active on my personal account, but you know, (laughs) Rav and Deepon were kind of here and there, you know, whenever they had time and we were shocked with the huge optometric, optometric community that was already on social media. We felt like we were missing out on a lot in our careers because there were so many students that were joining. There were so many, you know, seasoned optometrists that were on there for a while who even transitioned from, you know, their YouTube content or their, uh, their blogs. And then they were bringing it onto Instagram and we feel a lot more supported. Now that we're on Instagram, we are meeting a lot of amazing optometrists just like you and ophthalmologists and other people in the healthcare field from being on social media. So Yeah, I definitely agree with you that, you know, it was the right decision to make a social media account that was for our professional career. Um, It just opened up a whole new aspect of networking.
2: Yeah, yes, yeah. 100% agreed. And you find out about, you know, conferences, and you find mm-hmm. out, you know, kind of what's going on in the field, different research. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've always really valued, um, you know, posts on ODs on Facebook, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, you get to hear about some like pretty interesting cases, and there's always a learning point And And it's nice to kind of hear these different opinions, you know, of how people would, you know, manage this case Um, and and the support that you get from these different outlets, I think is just, is fantastic. It's completely, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Kataria, you basically answered all of our questions perfectly. Um, I mean, you (laughs) gave us so much information. We learned a lot more about how we can, um, you know, address those awkward moments in our own clinic, in our workplace, even at home, within our group of friends. You know, everything that you told us today is not only for optometry and not only at work or at school. This is something that we need to start developing these skills for life, just handling the, uh, you know, inappropriate comments, sexism, gender bias, anywhere we go. Um, so I think our listeners have learned a lot as well. Well, I just want to
2: say thank you so much to all four of you. I, I know one of you is not here, um, for organizing such, a, an amazing podcast. I, I think that you guys have hugely valuable content. And I'm so appreciative of that. And I've loved listening to all of the episodes um, and reposting about it. And, um, you know, the, the list of questions that you guys prepared today was absolutely excellent. And it, I, think we, I think we talked about a lot of relevant topics, like you said, mm-hmm. Amrit. And I think that we um, touched on a lot of things that we've been experiencing um, and maybe we just haven't spoken about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the one thing out of this podcast I hope that we can all gain is that we are not alone. We are mm-hmm. all experiencing very similar trends regarding, you know, gender bias and sexism and inter- being interrupted and these biases that we've talked about. And, you know, I think that I just want to leave the listeners with one thing, and that is, you know, we are moving towards creating positive change. And and I do believe that we're going
3: to get that. Thank you to everyone for listening to Four Eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating to give us feedback on how we're doing. You can also check us out on Instagram at 4Eyes for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So until then, stay tuned.